Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Sarah Jane Bentley. And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader. We are here to discuss Marilyn Robinson's novel home, we are drawing towards the end. So this is our penultimate episode. Well, not including the Q&A. It's our penultimate episode, right? So next week, we will be concluding the book and then we'll answer your questions uh, for those of you who are listening. Before we dive into the book, though, we need to shout out somebody, somebody who does not get mentioned enough on this podcast and all of our podcasts, and that is uh, Logan Green. Because Logan is moving right now. Oh. He, he was slept barely at all last night and he is still managing to... Uh, master episodes of podcasts for us. And I feel like as someone who has just gone through a move, who's just been doing that, it's busy. It's crazy trying to get your house ready to go on the market and all that sort of thing. So I want to just say thank you to Logan for his hard work, for his dedication, and wish him the best of luck selling his house. I think that's the stage that he's in, if I, if I, if I recall correctly. So Wow, that's amazing. Shout out we to love Logan. you, Logan. You're amazing. He uh, makes it so these podcasts actually get to the listener because we just sit on zoom press record talk for a while and then send him files and then he does all the extra stuff to make it to make it uh so that Listenable. it sounds okay in your yeah. earbuds in your earbuds yeah um so logan thank you so much everybody should send logan a message on facebook or something like that and send him so many nice messages that it's embarrassing perfect okay speaking of nice messages that are embarrassing I think that's somehow a segue into this book. In this section of... Except for the nice part. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is, a, this is a pretty intense section of... Is intense the right word? Would you say intense is the right yes. word? As soon as I said it, I was thinking, maybe that's not enough of a word. <laughs> I thought it was excruciating. That's the word. That's yeah. the word. Intense was the word that I used. But as I'm saying it, I'm thinking my brain is like firing back at me. Mm, that's not good enough. But you came up with the word just like that. So excruciating is a good term. But with that in mind, I have a question. We've been looking for a lot of things, hoping for a lot of twists and turns, uh, some, some catharsis at times. Uh, we've been waiting for some moments. And I'm wondering if despite the excruciatingly intense nature of this 50-page section of the book, are we getting any of those... Uh, things that we've been looking for? Are we getting any catharsis? Are we seeing any of the moments or signposts or twists and turns that we have been hoping for? Heidi, you're, I think you're nodding. You're also staring at the ceiling. So it's hard to tell exactly if you were actually nodding. staring at the ceiling. That is, I know I say this all the time, but that is such a good question. Um, I, I say it so much just to make it meaningless, I know, but I want right now I, you to feel like I'm saying meaningful. I mean it every time I say it, but I, <laughs> I like this time I extra mean it. Um, I think no, but I think we get a lot of catharsis adjacent moments, like things that you wish. Right up to the edge. Yes. Or, or the wrong person. 
Like, I think that there's things that, for example, Teddy says that if Boughton had said it, I would have felt kind of a cathartic release, Mm. but because Mm -hmm. Teddy said it and he's not a main character and he kind of just comes in and out and, and, or because it's written in such a way that it's very clear that, that it, that the words are just glancing off of Jack and he's not really hearing them. Glorious, for example, says some things that if Jack could receive them might be really healing, but he doesn't seem to be able to. Uh, And so I think, like I said, catharsis adjacent, but I don't feel any sense of true catharsis in this section. And I'll be honest, it is excruciating for me. This book is like killing me dead. So... (laughs) It's hard for me to read. I'm having a hard time. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Sarah Jane, let's let her, maybe we should do some therapy. Some book therapy. Um, I'll take therapy anytime. But I do think that this book is just, this is reading is. hard. It's hard. So I, so no, I've, and I think the reason it's hard is because I'm trying to answer the question in a literary manner by telling my experience with it. Like I, I I think if there was some kind of catharsis, I wouldn't still have that feeling of like sore to my heart, which I still have. I can't believe you read this postpartum, Sarah Jane. I I was thinking about you the whole time, like with a new baby and the hormones and you're reading Marilyn (laughs) Robinson. Yeah. I could barely read an episode of Law and Order during that time. (laughs) And you're reading this book. She's got that. She's got that English. Well, she's Welsh. So never mind. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in England. I know you're going to say. I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> it's. It, it was messy. This bit was messy. I. I. I guess probably slightly different to you from what, what I've gathered from what you've said about kind of sitting down and getting your family to talk things through, Heidi. I kind of think, why don't they just keep them keep it to themselves and bury it and move on. <laughs> Which is probably the worst, the worst possible thing. But I was thinking, why do they keep having these conversations? Why don't they just not say anything about it and go and do the gardening? That would be so much better for everyone. But this part is is messy. Um, and what do you mean messy? Like there were just the interpersonal stuff is messy, or for Marilyn Robinson, like craft wise, it's messy. No, no, I don't mean um, artistically or structurally. Okay. I actually, okay. I think it's it's quite a masterful climax in a way. Mm-hmm. Or anti-climax, if you like. But I suppose the climax is that um, it's building up is that there's a sense that Jack's going to leave and everybody always knew that. Um, Mm. But then you kind of think, why did he bother to come? Because as Heidi was saying, nothing really got solved by his turning up and bringing his nothingness and trouble with him. But he's really nihilistic, isn't he? And I think actually in this section I had a lot less sympathy for Jack than I've had previously. Hmm. Go on. Well, I thought that the frailty of his father, the, the outside character of Teddy coming in, um, and then the emotional burden on glory all seemed to point to, to Jack actually being right about himself being this kind of, he calls himself a nothing, doesn't he, that, that creates this, kind of mess around him. And, um, and that's why he tries to stay away because he realizes how much misery he brings. Hmm. So I felt, I, I did feel some of that um, reaction to Jack and I kept thinking, what is it that he wants? What is it that, um, 
what would be meaningful to him and what would be meaningful to the family? Like what possible resolution could there be at this point? Um, And not that I felt hopeless because it's more like, what, to your point, Sarah Jane, I don't mean to be dismissive, but there's a little bit of me that's like, what actually is the big deal? Right. So uh, if you could name it, if, if people were actually talking and being honest, what would it be? How would you, how would you name the, the elephant in the room in this family and, and then bring some healing to it. And then to your point though, I felt so angry about him in this particular section. So you said you lost some sympathy for Jack. I felt sympathy for all of them. And I did feel a little bit of loss of sympathy for Jack, but mostly I just was like, I I had like a viscerally negative reaction to Bowden in this particular section. So anyway, David, I'm sorry. What were you going to say? No, go on. I just, he was, he was (laughs) so cruel. And I think he's, he, he's been, pushing these things down for so many years and he's dying. And so he's saying the thing and it's, it's also very clear that there's some mental derangement going on and his mind is going. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so because he's in and out of clarity, right? So his filter is gone. So I can understand that um, from a medical standpoint, but I think from that to go back to your question earlier, David, about catharsis, um, uh, he's the things that he's saying, although understandable in the context of a dying man are so wounding to the family, even glory stepping in and shushing him, um, that it's, it's just, it was painful to read, I think, um, because what we want is for these two men to move towards each other. And instead, Robinson's written it so that their division is getting greater and greater and greater. Um, and it's it's painful because it and it's the opposite of what we've all been building toward as readers. Mm. I wasn't sure when I read the section the first time, I wasn't sure whether Boughton was being manipulative and pretending not to know Jack or whether he actually has... Mm. Alzheimer's or dementia or something. I couldn't work it out because as you say, he's so lucid and direct and pointedly wounds Jack that I then wonder, is it possible that he's also losing his mind because he's, he's so able to hit the target when it comes to. That's a good point. I never even thought of that. So I don't know. What do you think? think? My thinking is he's not doing that because there's a scene earlier where he's just with glory and he says something about how um, y- your mother said, some, said yeah. something the other day or something like that. So even when he's not with Jack, there's a little moment where yeah. she seems to be showing that he's beginning to flip. But also, it's been progressively, like at the beginning of the book, he was much more cautious about what he was, how he was speaking to Jack. And <clears throat> as he has... Um, gone on as, as the story has gone on he has become increasingly less capable of controlling the things that he's saying but in a way i think that's kind of the point for two reasons because on the one hand it's just it's another bit of tragedy in the timing of jack's return so on the one hand 
if he had come back earlier, his father would have been more capable of having these conversations and he wouldn't have, they wouldn't have occurred in the way that they did. On the other hand, um, I disagree with Heidi's take that they're actually going further away. Because I, I think, I think that what's happening is the, so Sarah Jane, you said it'd be better for everyone if they just kept quiet. I, that's, that's probably, I mean, I don't know if it's actually true. Like, I don't know if that's actually no, how it works. It's definitely not a good idea. It's just um, what I would want. She's raising, the, she's raising the question though, I think. I mean, it's a good question. Is it better to say something supremely hurtful to someone's deepest wounds? Is that the right way to reconcile? Is that necessary for reconciliation? I, I think that's part of the question of the book. Um, but make right. your make your case that they're moving towards each other. Cause I think it's a valid interpretation. I just read it very viscerally, you know? Um, so last section, we talked a lot last episode. We talked about the idea of Jack's faith or lack thereof. Sarah Jane, I think you pointed out that there's not a lot of repentance. Mm. And to me, this is the section where we finally get the confession. Yeah. Um, and agreed. Agreed. Um, what we, so, so for example, well, we'll come back to it. There's a scene that we need to read between he and glory where they're, they're essentially confessing while he's washing his hands. Uh, he's washing the results of the previous night off his hands with the, what the, the shortening. And they're talking about all the things that he's, the sins he's committed. And he confesses that he went to prison and all that sort of thing. And then right after that, we get some of these scenes with his father. And so the suggestion seems to be that there were these things that have been left unsaid and they actually need to be said. And that although their approach to one another is not necessarily what you might call peaceful or uh, reconciliation there's this, it seems to me that had they bit, had Boughton been in his right mind, they wouldn't have been able to, things that need to be said wouldn't have actually been able to be said. Um, and so because he's lost his capacities to sort of filter the way he says things, he tells Jack the truth in a way that needs to be expressed. Um, because I think there's a sense that Jack has always been on the outside. And so he, when he is told the things that need to be said, it's hurtful, but also he is a part of the circle by being told those things. And, and so this is, there's also stuff at the end of the book that we'll talk about related to this, I think. Um, so I don't want to say too much, but I think that it's all a part of the sort of confessional nature of this section, because ultimately everything in the book has been leading up to these, these sort of moments of confession. Confession does not always lead to reconciliation in the way that we would want it to. It doesn't always make people like have this like, you know, it doesn't make everything roses and unicorns, something. You know, it sometimes it leads to a lot of hurt. And so even here we have Bouton confessing as well. The filters are gone and he's actually confessing the reality of how he felt. And Heidi, you said that there's this idea. I'm Stop me anytime you want. Mm-hmm. Heidi, you said this, this, this idea that um, the catharsis, 
Well, okay. Let's talk about what I'm saying here. I, I want to come back to your idea that the catharsis comes with this sort of like huh, feeling, right? This sort of like, I don't remember the exact non, non-verbal <laughs> word, thick, noise you actually used to express the feeling. But I would like to talk about whether that's actually something that you like, you have to have sort of peace coming out of catharsis. Like, like it has to feel reconciliation and catharsis are the same thing. But first we should probably, you should probably respond to what I'm saying, unless I've just rambled to the point of nonsense. It's definitely not nonsense. I think a classical definition of catharsis a la Aristotle, where the term actually came from does indeed require a watershed moment of pity and fear, right? That's the actual definition is an emotional response of release to an event in the story. Um, So I do think that catharsis, just in terms of the technical definition of the word, (laughs) does require that. And, but Aristotle's entire point was that you structure a tragic tale in a certain way so that you're guaranteed that reaction from the audience. Um, and we're way past that now in the development of art. <laughs> um, so, and especially in Marilyn Robinson. Yeah. So that's, uh, I, I mean, most people just mean when they're talking about catharsis, they do mean an emotional release. I think that emotional release is then found in certain types of moments in a story. And one of them is reconciliation. When you as the reader have been participating in a story so intensely, to use a word we used earlier, that we've been waiting for a moment in which the characters say or do something that we feel like would bring us that release, right? So skilled writers will craft a story that leads towards some kind of moment that will provide that. Um, And most of the time we, in most of the time we know exactly what we're supposed to feel that the story pretty much tells us to. Um, And we're not at the end of the story. And so I don't know what all of this is leading towards. I haven't finished it. I only know my own reaction from this reading that I ended 45 minutes before we logged on, which was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I was so emotional to read, so excruciating. So I didn't feel catharsis in this scene, which doesn't mean that it's not going to happen or it doesn't. And I could have missed something. And to your point, David, you do need to have a, a relationship with somebody. There has to be the freedom to to speak truth, even if the truth is hard. Um, and so I do hope that this is leading to a cathartic moment, but I don't think we have it yet. So it sounds mm-hmm. to me like for you, catharsis is closely tied to the notion of resolution. I think that it's intent. It's, I, I, I really am trying to use it in the Aristotelian sense of the, that moment, the release of pity and fear. The thing that we're afraid of ha- didn't happen. And the thing that we feel so sorry about has been somehow, like, as you say, like You've been released from yes. pity and fear. Yeah. Because I read that the opposite. Well, go ahead. Sarah Jan, how do you think about this? I'm always um, curious about Aristotle and catharsis because I obviously agree with Heidi. It is about evoking pity and terror and that that creates, that creates a sense of cleansing of all the previous anxieties and frustrations that have been brought about by the tragedy. Um, what I never know with Aristotle is, is the catharsis, is it, 
is it also meant to be in the characters? Is it just in the audience? Is it meant to happen while you're still in the theatre? Is it meant to be ongoing after you've left? There, there are kind of some questions surrounding catharsis that I have never been able to answer in my years of teaching Greek tragedy. Um, and with this one, I absolutely agree with Heidi, we're not at the end yet. And if we're looking for catharsis in the characters, I don't think they're getting any. And so there hasn't been that emotional cleansing yet, I think, for the characters in the story. But for us as the audience, as the reader, certainly there has been some kind of emotional progress in this section. And what I found so um, frustrating, I think, or incomplete, which I think is what Heidi's also saying about this catharsis, is that we see Jack in the winding sheet and there's more imagery of Lazarus there. And it's almost as if he was dead and he comes back to life and he's washed clean. And then I, I, you'd think sort of symbolically then that there would be a kind of this purgation has happened and then it, he's restored somehow, but he isn't. And that's yeah, she re- really She rejects the, the neat and tidyness mm. that that would provide. Yeah. And the car's so, still broken. Um, his hands are still scarred that I like that about Robinson. She, she isn't trying to bring about some sort of magic trick. Okay. So we've been talking about this idea of catharsis and you guys have both used the term emotional cleansing and particularly we've used it in relation to the characters and I would, so I'm wondering if maybe we're looking at the wrong way, which is not meant to be accusatory. (laughs) Um, so maybe there so let's like let me just throw something out there. Let's let's say for the sake of conversation, it's true that there has not been this emotional cleansing, emotional resolution. Everything emotionally is even more mixed up. Is it possible that coming out of these scenes of confession, and I do want to read at least one of them together, that what we're getting is not emotional cleansing, but something higher. Maybe maybe we're getting closer to a spiritual cleansing, and that thus the catharsis of the story is tied to that sort of a cleansing as opposed to an emotional one. Hmm. And she's rejecting the idea that what we need is this sort of like, you know, cleansing tied to pathos or something like that. I think Robinson is at least so far in this book and I haven't read the end, but definitely in housekeeping for sure. And I even less, maybe less so in Gilead. I think she is rejecting the idea of a fully developed, neat and tidy bow on human relationships. And I, I think that that is part of her work. I think there's varying, deg- there's varying opinions um, on how successfully she does that. Right. But I, I think that for sure, that's one of the, that's, that's one of, the thing she's attempting to do is bring into question what does it mean to resolve or what does it mean to forgive? What does it mean to bless somebody? What does it mean to love someone if you can't communicate that love in a way that they can understand? Um, and is and, and I think the only way to bring that into question as a craftsman of a novel is to make the relationships increasingly difficult and tangled, which is what she's doing here. How, what she does to resolve that remains to be seen. Uh, but for people who've read Gilead, we know how it, the story ends with Jack. Um, and 
And so there's a sense of a ticking clock as well that hangs over the last part of the story for those who 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 know that. If this is your first experience with, with it, it's still, of course, an entirely a question mark. But yeah, I think that, but your, your question about whether or not there's some kind of spiritual, whether or not the confession itself is meant to be cathartic. Um, hmm. I mean, to, to your point that you made earlier, Sarah Jane, Arist- is Aristotle saying that catharsis is in the character and the audience? I think in poetics, he's suggesting that it's in the audience. The audience is supposed to feel the catharsis. Um, and... Right. Not and and so and and that's how you feel. His whole point is that's how the only way you can feel satisfied with the story. That's it. Now whether he's right, I don't know, but that's his point. If you want a satisfying story, whether it ends happily or not, doesn't matter. In fact, it's better for it to end happily, but you have to have a catharsis. I'm not saying I'm an Aristotelian on this, but I am saying I haven't experienced <laughs> catharsis and I am like agitated. So <laughs> about that, this book right now. So and because I don't direct, feel that. Yeah. I suppose the question is, is it a tragedy? Is the other question. That, I mean, I have, very, that and question. Who's up, I have that written who's on this our protagonist. Paper, yeah. Um, yeah. And we can't answer that yet, can yeah. we? As you said, because we haven't got to the end. But there's a there's a kind of symbolic stripping of Jack in this section, isn't mm-hmm. there? Where he, which happens in a tragedy where there's there's nowhere to hide anymore. And he's right down to his to a winding sheet in the garden. Everything's exposed. Um, he's had to confess his hiding place to glory. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no secrets anymore. There aren't really, but then he's there's still a mystery about Jack that doesn't, doesn't get resolved. Well, but the book tells us in this section, it's not going to get resolved. Mm-hmm. Doesn't it? I mean, he basically is like, I, he's been telling us, I don't know. Yeah. Yes, and that, that, that the mystery is the thing that he carries around, which he calls a nothing, that his right. soul is this kind of dark uh, emptiness. I mean, so if, how it's anything but a tragedy, I'm not sure. <laughs> but given, mm. given, given that, but I mean... He's not a tragic hero in the Aristotelian sense. Yeah, well, when and as, as when was the last time there was a tragic hero? I know, so yeah. And as Heidi keeps asking, you know, what is his struggle exactly? But I mean, I think, but again, he doesn't, he doesn't know. Right. He can't explain it. He doesn't, he keeps saying, I don't, I don't know why I couldn't feel like a, a part of things. Mm-hmm. I would, and he, and he has this really sad bit where he talks about how most of the time everyone thought I was off causing problems, but in reality, I was just hanging out somewhere in the shadows, listening to the family be a family and not feeling like I could be a part of it. Yeah. And he he said, I don't know why I felt that way. I don't know why I still feel this way. He, you know, there's a there is something that he can't put his finger on. And the fact that he put his can't put his finger on it means that everyone else is left feeling like they helped play a part in him feeling that way. It's somewhere between everyone's kind of Bouton is feeling like it's either his fault or his son was cursed in a sense. Mm. And that's a rock and a hard place if ever there was one. Did you get the sense? from what Glory's been saying about the Boughton family, that the children were pigeonholed. They were given a kind of, you are this child. And yeah, they created archety- archetypes for their children. Yes. So when Jack's playing the piano, 
Boughton's like, well, that can't be Jack. It must be Grace. Mm-hmm. Is it Grace? Have I got that yeah. right? Um, and and then there was something specific about Glory where it, it, she says that she was never allowed to say anything and she was often kind of kept out of certain public scenarios with the family because she was so indiscreet because she was the youngest. And so Years it's a family that covers things up. Yeah. And then and, there's even the bit at the end. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. And, and Jack is, is the sort of black sheep. So that's whether he is behaving in that way or not, that is his role in the family. And it's very hard to break out of. Mm. I don't know if that's a helpful way of looking at this family. It's very helpful. And is, I mean, I can't, I can't help but you guys know this, so forgive me, but I really can't help but read this particular novel, but all novels through my therapeutic background and training, I, all dysfunctional families do this. This is a, this is like ground zero, 101. So all, for, so all families? Yes. For, <laughs> true. Um, as you said, Dave, and I quote you all the time on this, like there are some families that have a normal amount of dysfunction, right? Like that's, something that you've kindly and lovingly said about your own wonderful family, right? They have, most families have like a normal amount of dysfunction. They grow up to laugh about it on the dinner table. Remember when you were always the smart one and you were the crazy one and, you know, like, but that's, that's, then, then there's families in which that identity follows you and clings to you and, um, and, and it determines the way other people in the family treat you. And this is called family systems therapy. So when people come in and get family systems therapy and they're like, okay, so what was your role in the family and how do people treat you and how can you escape, break free of that? And you practice different ways that you can say, but that's why people, you know, go home for Christmas and they feel like they're seven years old the entire time um, because they have a role in the family and you can't help but kind of habitually inhabit that. And I think that's one of the things that Robinson is exploring here. And we have Jack, the scapegoat, the bad kid, and um, and and there's a part of me that wants him to hear that, right? And that he keeps asking for that throughout the whole novel. Stop telling me you forgive me and just tell me what I deserve. And I think the truest thing that Bowden said in this section that was just lovely and true was like, you think about that too much. You think about what you deserve too much. And I think that's part of the problem. And I thought that was beautiful. Yeah. I loved that. Um, well, because- but it wasn't, it didn't, you know, Jack has, he's got this armor, like you can't, even truth and healing words can't pierce it. And that's, that's what feels so tragic to me about Jack. I would argue that even the most mentally, intellectually, and spiritually healthy of us can rarely actually describe why we are the way we are. Mm. Like we can maybe point to certain experiences that say this thing shaped me. This was a bridge that I crossed and it helped determine the course of my life. Right. But rarely can we actually explain why we are the way we are beyond saying these are the things that sort of make me tick or bother me. Right. But what happens here is, Bouton, what you're pointing out there is that Bouton seems to have put his finger on something with Jack. Jack says he can't quite... I mean, Jack expresses what I just said, right? He's had a lot of dysfunction in his life. And he can't put his finger on it. Like almost none of us can. But he also then spends so much time thinking about just desserts, so to speak. Right. And he can't get past the possibility that that he deserves to be the way he is. Mm -hmm. To, to, To be the thing he can't put his finger on 
why he is the way he is. And this circle of like dissonance that that creates in your Mm -hmm. soul, I think is what leads him to feel like there's a nothingness. It's like Mm -hmm. that circle is sort of boring its way into him over his lifetime until it's created a vacuum. And that's the degree of dissonance that's there is is impossible for him to, to, to he he can't find ways to fill it right um and and that's i think I, I do think this is a tragedy um but maybe not in the aristotelian sense i think that's no, part I of where that tragedy comes from that go ahead Sarah. well i think there's another sort of hint maybe in the characters of jack and glory as two sides of a coin in that Glory's always crying and Jack's always laughing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Although neither of them particularly might, they might not manifest those emotions completely, but that's their sort of default response. Is Jack will smile and laugh awkwardly and Glory will have tears in her eyes. And he's always the one that notices that she's crying, even when there's other people in the room, before anybody else, the way she notices in the narration that he's been laughing or that he laughs kind of off to the side. Right. There's a wavelength there. We can go on, go on. What you say? Well, that was just my observation, really. And I, I the question I always ask when I'm reading is, why is it these two children that end up at home? Uh-huh. And then I think the answer, which was plain in this bit, was it's because of the dead child, Jack's daughter, who Glory grieved for, and obviously it was sort of Jack's fault. So. That seems to be the thing in the family that has created these problems. Mm. Um, whereas Teddy is able to come and go and has another life elsewhere. There's not this ghost. There's not this thing haunting, haunting there. The, the, the baby's the thing that ties them to each other too. Mm. She played a role that he was not able to play in the life of that baby. Mm. That's interesting that it, and it gets brought up in this section like Bouton recognizes it. He He's the one that sort of... Robinson uses Bouton's derangement in a way to bring that to the fore for us, like to, to sort of remind us of mm. that, which is interesting. Yeah, and it's such a striking picture of an elderly person who can kind of he's sort of reflecting on all, all the sin in his life that he's carried and it weighs him down. And I mean, surely he repents of it as well, but you, you can kind of see it there mm. in his face in his, in his actions and his words that um, he needs to be released from. And I, I thought that Marilyn Robinson painted that portrait really well and that it was very powerful and sad. Section reminds me of Graham Greene. There's just no priest in it. Hmm. Except Actually. he is the priest, kind of, isn't he? Right. Right. Entirely. There's no, I guess I would say there's no um, moment of absolution. There's the moment of confession, mm. but the book sort of lacks. So, like, okay, let's read. Can we, can we read something? Uh, shoot. Okay. Uh, for me, it's 287. The section has one of those lines, and then it starts with, he waited for her. Sarah Jen, I don't know what page that's. That I'll is find you. it. It's enough that we should probably do uh, a narrator and then the two characters because they're having a dialogue here. So we can do it the uh, table read style. It's right after Sarah Jane. It's right after he 
it, she takes the bottles down from his little from his loft, from yeah. his holy of holies, right? From um, his tabernacle, yes, his tower. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's just right after that. You assign us roles, and I'll find it. What uh, should we do? One of you be the narrator. Yeah, I'll do Jack, and then one of you can be Glory. Just you know, to stay with all the the gender. <laughs> all right, I'll be I'll be Glory if you be the narrator, Sarah Jane. I'll have you to be the narrator. I don't believe in gender. I just want to say that for I the was, record. That was, uh, <laughs> I was just uh, throwing a joke out there, just to cause some chaos. I'm glad someone bit. <laughs> He waited for her. And when she came back from the orchard and the shed, he walked to the house with her a few steps behind. He said, I'll pull that down tomorrow, my shanty. I'll clean things up around here before I go. I've let a lot of things slide. It's still much better than it was when you came. He opened the screen door for her, he said. I'm going to try to get some of these stains off my hands. I can't help much with the old fellow until I do. I think he's scared of me the, the way I look now. No, he just hates the thought that you hurt yourself. He nodded. You can hate thoughts. That's interesting. I hate most of my thoughts. He opened the cupboard under the sink and found a scrub brush. Glory said, You might rub your hands with shortening. That would probably dissolve the grease. Scrubbing will make them look inflamed. She took the can from the cupboard, scooped out a spoonful and put it in his palm. She said, Remember when you talked to me about your soul? About... Saving it? He shrugged. I think you may, may be mistaking me for someone else. And I said, I liked it the way it is. Now I know you're mistaking me for someone else. He did not look up from the massaging of his hands. I've thought about what I should have said to you then, and I haven't changed my mind at all. That's why it embarrassed me, because it would have been so presumptuous of me. I'm not even sure what it means. Then she said, what is a soul? He looked up, smiled, studied her face. Why ask me? It just seems to me that you would know. He shrugged. On the basis of my vast learning and experience, I would say it's what you can't get rid of. Insult, deprivation, outright violence. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there, and so on. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea... Interesting choice of text. It, it came to mind. Don't make too much of it. Well, your soul seems fine to me. I don't know what that means either. Anyway, it's true. He said, Thanks, chum, but you don't know me. Well, you know I'm a drunk. Man, a thief. He laughed. Yes, a drunk and a thief. I'm also a terrible coward, which is one of the reasons I lie so much. She nodded. I've noticed that. No kidding. What else have you noticed? I am not going to mention vulnerable women. Thanks. He said. Very generous in the circumstances. She nodded. I think so. He said. I'm unaccountably vain despite all, and I have a streak of malice that does not limit itself to futile efforts at self-defense. I've noticed that too. He nodded. I guess there's nothing subtle about it. She brought a washcloth and began gently to soap away the dingy shortening from his hands. He took the cloth from her. So, he said, we've made a list of my venial sins. Presbyterians don't believe in venial sins. 
I'm pretty sure I'm not described by the word Presbyterian. No, hush. He laughed. All right, my lesser sins. Not that Presbyterians believe in them either. Do you want a list of the grave ones, the, the mortal ones? Not really. That's good. He said, Reverend Miles, Dell's father and my biographer, told me I was nothing but trouble. I felt the truth of that. I really am nothing. He looked at her. Nothing with the body. I create a kind of um, displacement around myself as I pass through the world, which can fairly be called trouble. This is a mystery, I believe. He said, It's why I keep to myself when I can. Uh, and now the tears. Don't you think everybody feels that way sometimes, though? I certainly have. While you had Della, you didn't feel that way. If you weren't alone so much, I mean, Papa's right about that. If you just let us help you. He said, When Mama died, I'd been out of jail for a couple days, so I could have come home, strictly speaking. But it takes a while to shake that off, you know, wash it off, to feel you could blend in with the Presbyterians. And the old fellow doesn't miss anything. I, I wouldn't have wanted him to see me. I was terrified at the thought. So I used his check to buy some clothes. I knew what he'd think of me when he saw I'd cashed it. He smiled at her. I was grateful for the check. I really was. I hadn't been at that hotel when he, where he sent it for quite a while. I was surprised the letter found me. But the desk clerk was impressed by the black borders, so he brought it to me. He hadn't even opened it. I spent part of the money in a bar. What was left of it? Glory said, You don't have to tell me anything you don't want to. Not that it matters. I don't care if you've been in jail. He said, No, it made quite an impression on me. I believe it's as congenial a place to be a place to be nothing as I could ever hope to find. He laughed. In jail, they call it good behavior. Not a thing I've ever often been accused of. He said, Jail reinforced my eccentricities. I'm pretty sure of that. Mama died more than 10 years ago, so you were all right after you got out of jail? Yeah, I was, and now I, knew, and now I know it was an aberration. Nothing I can sustain on my own. I found out that I still can't trust myself, so I'm, I'm right back where I started. He smiled. You forgive so much, you'll have to forgive that too. Well, I guess you won't have to. You know I will. After a moment, he said... You probably wonder what kind of woman Della is shacking up with the likes of me. She reads French. She embroiders. She sings in a choir. There are things I haven't told you about her. She shrugged. Some things are sacred. He laughed. Yeah, yes, that's it. That's it. Exactly. He wiped his hands on the dish towel and looked them over. Not too bad. He said. He held them up to her inspection. You should be able to stand the sight of my hands at least. I wish there was something I could do about my face. You could get a little sleep. Not a bad idea. If you don't mind, there are a few things I'm meant to get done today. Sleep for an hour or two first. Yes. He said. I'll do that, thanks. He stopped, halfway up the stairs. I told you a minute ago that I was in jail. I, I should have said prison. I was in prison. Then he watched her to appraise her reaction. She said, I, 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 I don't care if you were in prison. But the words cost her a little effort, and he heard it and smiled at her for a moment, studying her to be sure that she meant them. He said, You're a good kid. 
An absolutely beautiful conversation. And speaking of good kids, (laughs) Sarah Jane's baby is crying in the background. So she's raced off as soon as I read that line to, to go get her. Okay, so a few minutes have passed. Sarah Jane is back. The baby's baby's asleep again. Yeah. She's, all right. Good. That was uh, done like a pro right there. I know. Well done, Mama. <laughs> um, Always learning. <laughs> yeah. It's just yeah, being a woman, working, being a mom. You're doing a great job. Thank you. My computer's not charging for some reason. So I'm going to figure that out here before long if we, or you never know what's going to happen with this episode, but let's get back <laughs> into it. I wrote in my margin here that this is, this is a scene here for, I read this as there's, there's a great deal of um, confession going on in here, mm-hmm. here and we could discuss the semantics of whether that means it's repentance. Um, and I, I find it really interesting that this notion of prison, he confesses that he was in prison and this revelation that he was in prison during a confession scene is there's a great deal of dramatic irony in that, you know, there's like, this is a, a fascinating way that Marilyn Robinson does this. Cause it's like, he's releasing, he's telling her these things and he's telling her about the fact that he was imprisoned. Um, which if nothing else, it suggests the notion of, of, or the association of confession with being free freed from a prison. It's hmm. <clears throat> good. And so what I want to, what I want to ask then going back to what we've been talking about in this episode is whether it's possible that that suggestion is what's in some ways playing out over the course of this part of the book, that there is a sort of freedom that he is um, walking into by confessing the things that he has done, the places that he has been by having to sort of ultimately face up to the consequences of actions that he's taken as he does when he talks to his father and he sees the pain that his actions have caused to people um, and his inability to be a, his inability to force himself to be a part of things has also caused lasting damage too. So do you, that's my take is what I'm going to say. That's my thesis, I suppose. Hmm. I'm not going to now give you three points in defense of that. I'm wondering if you disagree. This is this, the great thing about a podcast is I can just throw a take out there and then you guys can either agree or disagree. <laughs> so um, uh, I would love to know if I'm off base with that. Sarah Jane, I'm going to ask you that, that first, partly because you, had, uh, you, you were writing and that suggests that you're thinking about what I was saying. Not that Heidi wasn't thinking about it too, but I now I need to know what are you about writing? what I was going to make for she dinner. Was, yeah, she was thinking about like dessert or something. <laughs> I don't know if you found this, Heidi, but I find being a kind of mother of a new baby, unless I write absolutely everything down, I forget it within five seconds. Mm-hmm. So for sure. I'm just trying to honor what you said, David, by actually remembering it. I, I, I appreciate <laughs> that. Because I don't remember what I said either. Yeah. So. <laughs> So I think you're asking, is there a sense that this is about freedom from prison and that um, there's a kind of irony here because he's still trapped in his, in his sins and in his, uh, he's unable to free himself from all of his past, essentially. And um, yeah, I think that's right. I think there are several moments 
in Jack's past and in this section of the novel where he's given these sort of I think we everyone hear can hear that. Yeah. It's okay. I mean, if you if you want to it doesn't take a bother break us. Again, you can. It doesn't yeah. bother us. So you just you just do your mom thing. Yep. I think I might have to take another three minutes out and uh, come back to that okay. question. Sorry. No problem. Okay. So I don't know what's going on with yeah. her tonight. She normally just goes to sleep. It's a bit weird. Hey. She's Fine. a human being. Yep, that's right. Okay, um, yeah. Ask Heidi. Unpredictable. Humans are okay. unpredictable. And the bit I was just going to talk about was the um, that t- bit when he talks about he's been in a mo- he's worked in a mortuary and he sees that yeah. dead body. Yeah. So he has mm. all these things that like show him um, that he's he's been re- absolved or saved from loads of things, but then he just never he never mm. takes the next step. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, anyway, Heidi, what do you think? Over to you. Yeah, yeah. We'll see you in a second. Oh, Elizabeth. Turn the mic off. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just we'll just leave this in. I don't know. That's right. This part has to stay. In. Okay, go ahead. Perfect. Um, I I do think that that is part of the underlying dynamics of what is going on here. And this conversation is exactly what I was referring to at the beginning of the podcast when I said there's these healing moments that happen with the wrong person right so because what we get in this in this novel is what i mean all of us understand pretty quickly that the real conflict is the real brokenness that needs to be healed the real wound and disease and distortion is between jack and his father um and that kind of everything springs from that so he has this at this point in the novel, this kind of hard fought trust uh, that's fragile, but is there, it's real with between him and glory. And so um, in this, in this section, I, I, I think he's so honest with her and it's really beautiful. And he hears from her. I love you. I don't care if you've been in jail. I think your soul is fine. Like I can't, imagine anything more healing to hear but it's from the wrong person he needs to hear it from Bouton um or he can't be set free so and you look skeptical what if I don't know that I I'm playing devil's advocate sure. here partly just as a form of exploration not mm-hmm. to be a smart okay. aleck yeah so <laughs> that's a funny thought what if the point though I've been thinking about this a lot as we've gotten deeper into the book because mm-hmm. at the outset, as you get into like halfway through, you sort of say, you assume that, that what you're describing is right. That the, that the real problem is this disconnect between father and son. But what if it's bigger than that? Like we get, we get the, the attempts to communicate with glory become so front and center throughout the book. And then we get his brother coming into it. We get all this stuff about why he didn't come back for the funeral. What if it's much less about the disconnect is much less about father and son and much more about the whole family? So, and, and what if the problem is that he, what he can't do is um, he, it's hard, he, he, he has, he is unable to integrate himself into the, mm-hmm. into the whole family. Yeah. He, he, in a way he rejects the family and um, he feels awkward and thus rejects it. And what if that is the disconnect that ultimately leads to 
the, the, the lion's share of the problems. And that is what his father is having a hard time actually forgiving him for doing and can't. And he has his Bowden is not able to provide the entryway into the family that he would, you would hope the father could. Mm-hmm. I'll, I mean, I'll buy that. I, I think that that's a reasonable interpretation. How would that change the tone of this and the meaning or potential healing or whatever of this conversation he has with glory, this confessional moment? If that, if that's the case, how do you then interpret this conversation? Well, it means that the conversation is being had with one of the people that it needs to be. And that's a restoring. And I think that that's true. I think that he and glory have, I'm so grateful for their relationship. Otherwise I would feel like both of them are right, (laughs) but both of them would be so hopelessly adrift. And that I think is the, that the, um, the importance of, of Bouton telling Glory that he's left the house to her and she like descends, spirals into despair at the thought, right? Because she she imagines herself alone in this house as like the curator of the museum of the family's like long series of lonelinesses and deaths. And mm-hmm. she can't handle that. And I think one of the-, the Yeah, she, that's her archetype role. Yes, archetype like, role. The youngest oh. child who gets stuck with- the family's yes, heirlooms. all the secrets, and I and he she has to preserve everything. You know, she sees the mm-hmm. way Jack looks at the, the 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 furniture, and she's like, "Well, now I have to keep it forever, right?" Because of yeah. his affection for it. Yeah, and she's cursed with it because yes, she's cursed with the burden because everyone else loves it's it. It's like a lady of Shalot, right? Like she sees the doom <laughs> coming upon her, and yeah. and and that <laughs> I think that juxtaposed or tied with this particular conversation does exactly what you're saying, which is this is a lifeline conversation for both of them. It restores their relationship. They have a chance to say, she has a chance to actually say something truly healing to Jack. Um, that ma- And that matters to her. She finds a lot of identity in that. And he gets a chance to actually hear something. So I'll buy that there's some catharsis here. I don't think it goes to the heart of the issue, but I do think that this is an important and a very meaningful conversation, probably for the reason that you said. It's interesting because at least this time through the book, I have spent way more time looking for catharsis in Jack's inner life hmm. more than I have in the relationship with the father. Um, <laughs> That's probably more meaningful, right? That's the thing we hope to get to. I don't, Not to need other people to say the things, <laughs> but to get there on our own. <laughs> yeah, I mean... So the idea, so you, and you two, you and Sarah Jane were talking in the mm-hmm. last couple of weeks about the notion of whether he believes. And then there was this question that came up of, we haven't seen confession, we haven't seen repentance from him yet. And confession seems to be at least the first step towards repentance. Confession is, you know, after you confess, then you have to do the turning away. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the part that we have yet. Maybe that's why there's this gap here, at least for you that he's confessing, but we don't yet have any assurances that it's not going to be anything more than another, than a cycle. Mm-hmm. He's going to return to, because human beings do that. We return, right? It's less yeah, than Mad I think Men. that's true. And I think for me, and again, this is, I mean, even talking about it, <clears throat> I mean, I started this podcast all worked up about this book and I'm feeling more settled you about the it. Session 45 <laughs> so, minutes before we started recording. Yes. Um, and even talking about it is kind of settling 
that. Um, and I think what I want for Jack, what I want for all of them, I want this, I want this for Boughton, even though I'm a little mad at him right now, because in my mind, it's all happening right now. <laughs> so, um, Not that, in like 1950. Exactly. Um, what I want for Glory, even for Teddy, the good child, the responsible child who takes however many trips to St. Louis to try to find his deadbeat brother in the streets, right? Like I want, what I want for this family is for them to be able to, to, to heal each other instead of wound each other. I'm looking much less for resolution to Jack's alcoholism and, and his, uh, you know, his, his secrets that he's hiding and a change in his behavior. I'm, I'm looking less for those things than I am for just meaningful words and actions that heal instead of wound each other. And I think that's why I felt so mad at Bowden. Like he's, to your point, we should be able to know the truth and stand in the truth, regardless of what those hurtful relationships in our lives speak over us and, and, and communicate to us. That's, that's what we want. But I still, I was so mad at Bowden because I'm like, you're just relentlessly wounding this already wounded man who's just like, at, what does she say? Is he, what does she say about him that he's, um, I can't, what, I can't remember the, the verb that she used, but something in retreating in, or withdrawing into resignation. Um, that's the phrase, withdrawing into resignation. Um, so yeah, I do want Jack to be able to not be hurt by his father in those moments, but more than that, I wish that Bowton would say something healing instead of wounding. But I also hear you that maybe that's the healing thing to do. Maybe it's, maybe right, he just needs to hear it. Maybe it's just the honesty. And so I think I'm, it, I'm open to that idea, but right now I'm just a little mad about it. So. <laughs> Isn't, I mean, I, that's right though. Like yeah. that's natural. That's what Jack feels too. Like right. that Marilyn Robinson does a good job. And so does Glory. Yeah. Glory has spent so much time protecting, protecting him, shielding him. And she doesn't want to let the truth be told. Yeah. But what is being told is the truth. Yeah. You know what? You're right though. That, that is true. I went back and kind of skimmed over it while we were talking, even during the podcast and Bowden doesn't really say anything that's not true. Like his accusations yeah, land. Be, right. Right. Jack recognizes the veracity of them, if you will. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, what I, I, he doesn't. He, oh, go ahead. You, no, you, go, you go, go ahead. No, what go ahead. I, what I don't see in Boughton, and maybe you can help me with this too, David. What I what I don't see yet is a any meaningful acknowledgement of his own contribution to Jack's alienation. Like he says, "I'm not a good as as good a man as I thought I was." He's he's acknowledging like I've been self-righteous, right? I thought I was forgiving him. I thought I was, you know, uh, whatever. But I, this, this kind of sense of 
Jack did everything. Like children don't actually do that. So there's some kind of reason or response. They don't just decide to disappear from a family, especially a family like theirs. So that what I, he does, there still seems to be like, he still seems to be blaming Jack for his own, Jack's own sense of alienation. Um, but so anyway, any responses to that? My gut says, I think, I, I feel like he does believe that he is at fault. Bowden and I'm does? Looking, yeah. Uh-huh. Hi, Sarah But I don't know that I could. Hey, we've got a fourth contributor yeah. here. Welcome to your debut appearance on Close Reads. That's right, Elizabeth. Elizabeth welcome. <laughs> <laughs> she just couldn't bear to be left out. For yeah. our listeners, you are we are seeing a sweet scene of mama and baby. <laughs> There's her little voice. <laughs> and no one minds at all. Right. I think to make the case for what I'm saying, though, that, that Bowden does believe he has been at fault. You'd have to go. I'd have to go tally up all the things that he said. Right. Throughout the book, that had made that impression on yeah, me. and you don't need no, to do that. That's difficult for me to do. You get the right now yeah. without writing an essay about it. <laughs> um, although I could rank, maybe I should rank my five favorite things that Bouton says <laughs> that that proved that he was at fault. Perfect. Um, so I I do think he does seem to say something along those lines in the conversation with Ames that we talked about last week. I do mm-hmm. remember a few of those comments when he says, you know, but like kind of general, and this is the thing about both Jack and Bowden, like father, like son, they say a lot of like self-deprecating accusation, like vague accusation. I'm not a good man. I'm, you know, Jack's that Bowden says that a couple of times. Uh, Jack says a couple, many times about how he's bad and people should reject him. But to your point that you're making, that you've made earlier, is that kind of general sense of shame a, a is that any kind of true repentance which says like forgive me for i have sinned have mercy on me for this you know specific sin for you know whatever whatever it was like i don't hear jack do that either he doesn't say i i i should never have seduced a child I was wrong and then abandoned her. Like he calls himself bad. And that's very different from saying I have sinned. Yeah, That's right. He has no, he has no kind of, I almost think it's too painful for him to be able to say that. And I'm sorry if you've already just covered that in the moments where I was out. No, we did it. Please go on. Um, But I think, it's almost as if he doesn't need to say, or he assumes he doesn't need to say it. But of course, as, as you've just made the point, he really does. He needs to confess that to his family, I think. Yeah, um, one thing we were talking about is that he does, he seems to confess, but there's not, we're not sure yet whether there's actual repentance. Like he, ex- he expresses the, some, some of the things that he feels like he's done wrong, but there's not necessarily a turning away that's, that, that's clearly happening. Yeah, and don't you find with Jack, it's it's always sort of like, well, that's just what I'm like. Right, and I get the feeling, I get the feeling that Bowden's like that too, that he mm. is like, it's it's very much like, and, and the tone I felt like in this passage and the passage we just read was, Jack, you 
failed to respond to my forgiveness by giving me a repentant son. I, and he even, I, I was so, I was so moved. Like I just noticed the glaring conversation when he says that I wish I didn't, he essentially says, I wish I didn't love you so much. It's so painful to love you. And I, I think that that's, I think that's the thing that Jack, in some ways that's putting words to Jack's deepest fear, which is my family doesn't want to have to love me. Well, so you, you said earlier that um, part of the problem is that Bowden has not been able to, how'd you put it? Not been able to say the things that need to be said or engage. Yeah. In a meaningful way. Take. Yeah. Or, I mean, and he doesn't have to blame himself for Jack's rebellion. That's, but I don't, I, I mean, that's a Jack's responsibility. And as we've all said, he needs to repent of that. But there's, there is this tone, I think, in Bowden of like a self-righteous, and he even says, I know I'm, I'm a bad, I'm not as good a man as I thought I was, but there's this self-righteous expectation that he could make Jack repent and that Jack has failed him because he hasn't. Um, and then I think along with that, there's so, also a very deep grief and fear for his son. I'm not saying that that's not there. That is there. Um, so, yeah. And another dark secret of Bowton's is why did he lose his congregation yeah that's good so so there's something he's done something wrong as well hasn't he that suggests that i don't know maybe pastorally as you say he has some issues that need resolving too but that maybe that's something that will be revealed in the next novel i wasn't Mm. able to guess it from Mm. this one so there is um on 294 during that conversation it's when he she can Gloria's convincing him that Jack is is the person sitting across from him. He's a little confused. He says, The old man said, Well, what did I expect? His life would be hard. I knew that. And he felt brooding. I was afraid of it, and I prayed, and it happened anyway. So here is Jack, after all that waiting. Jack smiled at her across the table and shook his head. Another bad idea. Nothing to be done about it now. Gloria said, It's been hard for him to come here. You should be kinder to him. And then a moment passed and her father stirred from his reverie. Kinder to him. I thank God for him every day of my life, no matter how much grief, how much sorrow. And at the end of it, all there is is only more grief, more sorrow, and his life will go on that way. No help for it now. You see, a, you see something beautiful in a child and you almost live for it. You feel as though you would die for it, but it isn't yours to keep or to protect. And if the child becomes a man who has no respect for himself, it's just destroyed so you can hardly remember what it was. It's like watching a child die in your arms. He looked at Jack which I have done. So then that goes on a little bit more. And this idea that she says, you should be kinder to him. He says, kinder to him, as if to say, I have been kind to him. And his expression of kindness is what? His expression of kindness that he defends himself with is that he prayed for him. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm. And so he says, no matter how much grief I took, my kindness was expressed by my prayers to God. And so what he was never able to do, clearly, is express his affection and devotion to his son, to his son, mm-hmm. <laughs> in a way that, and that's where, and that's right. where you could blame him. Mm. Um, and he, so his inability to, to do that in an, 
in a way that is not abstract, that is not spiritual, which is not to say that spiritual expressions of affection for your children and praying for them is a negative thing, but his, his ability to express his affection and devotion to Jack is purely abstract. There is no, it, it, he was never able to actually connect. And so I think that that's what he is not quite able to put his finger on. And that that's one of the things, the chasm sort of between them. And I think that that is, that this is a novel about that. Mm, I think yeah, it's in a lot of ways, it's a novel of, about the ways that we are not able to say the things that need to be said in a way that it's tangible and, and personal, like, like to express the ways we feel about each other and what happens when you're not able to do that. Because we all, this book is also about how everybody has a secret, right? Jack has his mm. secrets, which will get revealed. Gloria has her secrets, which have been revealed to us and to Jack, but not to her father. And he doesn't suspect them. We, Sarah Jane, you just mentioned that Bowden has his secrets. Lila has her secrets. Um, uh, Ames has his secrets. I, I wondered as well whether, is that, is she writing in the kind of style of Faulkner? Because it reminds me a lot of Absalom, Absalom. Hmm. Mm. Hmm. How do you, how difficult it is to get a story told? And Faulkner always likes to make it as difficult as possible for himself. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. And then he makes it difficult to be heard too. Because yeah. the part of having a story that can, that can bind you together is that you have, someone has to tell it and someone has to hear it. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise it's just one-sided. Right. And sometimes when they're actually able to tell the story, the other person's not hearing it. And sometimes neither the person can't tell the story when someone else is ready to hear it. Um, and that's what's, that's where the disconnect is. Um, and the things that are happening in our inner lives are so tied to those, our ability and inability and to, to say the things that need to be said. And it takes each individual a lot of work to get to the point where you can say something. And so if you don't say it when the person is ready to hear it, right. That disconnect could be, everlasting right right i'm not mm -hmm. going to say eternal but <laughs> mm -hmm. go right. ahead Heidi. it makes the division I, I think what you're saying is really important I know you have to go i do but I, I think what you're saying is really important and i think that that's i mean that just keeps happening every once in a while you have a conversation in which there's two people like the, this lovely conversation we read between jack and glory and there's a couple of those in which there, there's two people prepared and ready to say something meaningful and healing and true, um, you know, good, true and beautiful that the other person's able to hear. But sometimes I, I feel like most of the time they miss each other, which doesn't mean that those words can't kind of sit in your consciousness and do a work even when you're uh, even even past the conversation, which isn't usually what happens in a novel, right? That's more like a real life thing. So, you know, you might say something that I, um, you know, I'm not ready to hear, but later I remember you said it and then it's meaningful to me at the time. But most of the time in novels, it's it's a different form. It's not real life. And so it, it does have that sense of like an aborted attempt to connect kind of over and over again. And you feel like you've missed it forever. Hmm. And that moment where Jack reveals to Glory that he worked in the mortuary mm. is another one of those moments where he has this sort of missed communication. So he he is he owes a debt to someone, and that debt has been passed on to somebody else. 
I'm sure readers will remember this moment where the IOU is tied onto this dead body that he mm-hmm. witnesses in the mortuary. And that's sort of how that's sort of how Jack's life is, in a sense, in the family, is that he passes on debts to other people and doesn't um doesn't fully realize the impact until it's too late. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that that little anecdote he tells Glory is, is quite a weighty one in terms of insight into Jack's life. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that, your point, oh, go ahead, please finish. Well, no, just that other people pay his debts and he, mm-hmm. despite being absolved of them, he never seems to feel free of them. Right. I think that goes back to what you said earlier about him being less sympathetic in this section. And I think that's true uh, because we see, um, we see, we do see in Boughton, even though my reaction was negative, there's another side of that. You could um, read it, read those painful conversations from completely the other perspective, which is Boughton's finally saying what he means to his son and all Jack can do is stand there and shut down instead of engage with him as his father is dying um, and, and, and repent and ask for forgiveness from his father. And that is, I think, a, a really valid and meaningful response as well as mine, which was say something to fix your son. Like, so I, I, that's why she's so brilliant. That's why Marilyn Robinson's so brilliant is you just, you can't help from read it from your own perspective and you have your own emotional response to it. And it's, it's messy. It's muddy, as you said earlier, Sarah Jane. And I think what you said Mm. is super important that it is just, this is, these are not novels that tell you how to interpret them from within. We have to bring ourselves to them and and attempt to see things from different perspectives. Um, yeah. yeah. And on that, what was your perspective, both of you, on the moment when Teddy comes back and gives Jack his address and says, Dad's going to die? Um, I think do we read it the way Jack did? Yeah, do, do exactly. That's the question. Do you read it the way Jack did? That it was this sort of subtle suggestion i do not oh, is read he paranoid he's i don't I read it as a passive aggressive uh, move by teddy because i, I don't think either. that's within his character as far as we know mm-hmm. like i don't think that i mean he is he's uh there's a sort of directness to him and he also has this um i think he has a compassion built in to him that gets talked about a lot the fact that he's a doctor and so forth so I don't read it that way. Now we could go back and do a, you know, like a paragraph by paragraph line that breakdown of the scene if we want to and try to find some textual analysis for that, for that reading. But I, Heidi, what do you think? I know you, Heidi, I know you got to go. So I do. Let's make I this didn't. your final thought. I thought, I thought it was, I thought what Teddy was doing was attempting to give Jack permission to be Jack. I think he and Glory both in this section were saying, if you disappear, we're, we don't hate you. Like we love you. Um, Mm. I, I didn't, I think they saw, both of them saw how Boughton's words wounded Jack and they wanted to be, you know, an antidote for that. They wanted to be a remedy. And so I did not think that Teddy was hinting that Jack should leave, but I know why Jack felt that way, right? Like that's, Again, it's one of those, the attempt at kindness bounced off his shutdown withdrawal into 
what's whatever. Oh man, now I forgot the word that, but I just loved it. It's indifference, maybe um, resignation, withdrawal into mm. resignation was the phrase mm. that Glory uses about Jack in this section and how painful it is for her to watch him shut down, mm. which is a very common trauma response. And that's what, I mean, that's what Jack's doing. So, yeah, I mean, I read it as he's trying to find a reason to leave in a way. Yeah. He's trying to read yeah. and Teddy's giving, um, he finds a way for Teddy to give him permission to do that. Yeah. But speaking of uh, ships in the night, guys, I do have to go pick up my, my Jack from yeah. school uh, so that he doesn't have lifelong psychological problems. So. <laughs> Although leaving him there for 15, 20 minutes might be good. Good for him. You know, I don't know how cold it is. I don't know what kind of bullies there are, what kind of wildlife, <laughs> but you know, he's what, 14 now? He is 14. Yes. Yeah, let him fend for himself for a yeah, while. Yeah. Well, I'm feeling I'm feeling too fragile about parenthood to do that right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, we will wrap this up for you. So, uh, we'll see you next week. All right. Thanks sorry, guys. Okay. Sarah Jane, are you rocking there in a rocking chair, or are you able to maintain that particular rhythm without a rocking chair? Because if so, that is impressive. It's um, it's a kind of painful lunge, but okay, it's, yeah, it's yeah. maintainable. Yeah, <laughs> I've I've found that I have all kinds of patience and endurance that I never thought I had for <laughs> uncomfortable positions and things like that. Um, yeah, but you, I was you just thinking about can... what. Go ahead. I was just thinking about what Heidi said and and you, and I think. But, but Boughton's point is that Jack is unable to receive the kindness of his family, which Boughton says are their, is their Calvinist Christian duty, and that it's Jack's Calvinist Christian duty, those are the words that Boughton uses, to receive their grace with grace, mm. and he can't do it. And so when Teddy extends him a kindness, he takes it as a hint um, that he should leave. And, and that seems yeah. to be one of Jack's faults that he can't accept kindness. It's yeah. And, and there's also, I mean, it's easy to be cynical about that, but you also wonder to what extent the last 20 years of his life reinforced that inclination. Mm. within him. So depending on what kind of people he was around where he probably wasn't around a lot of people that were saying being kind to him, he was around a lot of people such as Della's father who were saying, get out, get out of here. And they were probably always dropping hints until it came mm. time to be direct. And so you mm. learn to read those hints. So if you want to be sympathetic to him, you can say maybe that was there as a child. And for whatever reason, he wasn't able to receive that. But then as an adult, he's now, that, that had been reinforced based on the, the experiences of his life. I'm not, yes. I mean, I think you're right. I'm just saying, if we want to try to be sympathetic to these characters. And the great thing about this novel is I think that the, the, the scenes in it, the, the moments in it, have enough universality within them to make it be something that we all can recognize. And yet there are no character that we can't, if we want to be sympathetic towards like none of these characters are so far gone that even in their darkest moments, we can't see ourselves or someone we know and thus come to that scene with a sympathetic tone or a sympathetic bent. I think that's absolutely true because Marilyn Robinson is such a compassionate author Hmm. Uh, that she loves the characters. And so we do too. And it, it, like, that's not, it, there are many great writers who are just amazing at creating characters that that's not necessarily true of. Like this, like I don't read Iago with, like he's a, 
he's a deeply complex character, but I don't know that I have a lot of sympathy for him. Now, you might read that differently. <laughs> I don't necessarily no, come away reading about, <laughs> about Hamlet's uncle feeling like, man, I just have a lot of sympathy for like, that guy went through no. as a child that led him to be the kind of villain that he became. Um, you know, you can read Flannery O'Connor and, and you read Good Country People or something and the characters are not necessarily, the, the darker characters are not necessarily characters you, you want to sort of get at and try to understand why they're sympathetic, like why they act, why they are the way they are. And her, uh, Robinson's books seem to be about the way that we become the way we are because we have relationships with the regular people in our lives, not mm-hmm. because we ran up against, you know, smog <laughs> or, um, you know, we're on a, we're on the Oregon trail and 14 people died of dysentery or something. You know, it's like there's regular things that people go through that make people the way they are. And, um, that's difficult to escape even in the, the best of, um, times, the best of situations. Mm. because their family could have been a lot worse. It could have mm. been better, but it could have been a lot worse. And that's true, I think, of most families. And so it makes you realize that, like, I think almost anybody that reads this looks at that and goes, I can see my family in this moment, in this scene. It's different in this way. It's a little healthier in this way, but I can see our dysfunction reflected in that dysfunction. It makes it very human. And there was something about the Bowerton family that reminded me of the flight family in Brideshead mm. Revisited. Yeah, that's good. That huh. um, Jack is a, is a bit of a Sebastian kind of character, yeah. isn't he? He is, yeah. And then Teddy could be Bridie. Gloria and Julia. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I love a good book comparison, one book to the other. I just oh, think I was thinking so of Glory and it's Cordelia, isn't it? The younger sister. Oh yeah. 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 Yes. Yes. You're right. Cordelia. Yeah. And, and that, hmm. that's, that's just that's in this scene that seemed to, to remind me a lot of Sebastian at the end of Brian's head. Hmm. How, uh, when he's confessing, when Jack's confessing that he's a thief and a drunkard. Yeah. And yet, he's the character who needs grace the most and there's no reason why he shouldn't receive it. Well, speaking of receiving, we've we've been here for an hour and 45 minutes, which means that we probably should not ask people to receive too much of a long episode. (laughs) Um, I don't know if that, that transition worked at all. Um, what are you going to be looking for as we get to the end of the book? This is your second reading, so I know you know how it ends, but what are you, what's your, what's, what are you looking for this time? I'm interested in closure, obviously, mm-hmm. as, the, as the end. Will mm-hmm. there be any mm-hmm. um, hints? I, I'm interested now in hints about the future because the novel Jack has been written and I didn't know that was going to happen. So mm. I wonder how the threads will be picked up. Let's see mm. what opportunities Marilyn Robinson has left for herself mm. to carry on writing. Well, so next week we'll finish. Uh, we'll discuss the last 30 pages or so. And then the week after that, of course, we'll answer listener questions. So if you have a question, uh, you can post those on the Facebook page. We'll create a thread for that. And then you can also email them to us at closereadspodcasts at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation, you can do that at Close Reads Pod- Pods on Instagram. And of course, there's the Facebook group, which you can search for in the search bar on Facebook. Newsletter is closereads.substack.com. 
We have our Patreon episodes. The next episode on The Lord of the Rings is going to go up early next week. So you can follow along there. Go to patreon.com slash close reads. And then we also have the plays, the thing, and the daily poem, which are two feeds, which we hope you will subscribe to along with a lot of the other content on the Cersei Podcast Network. You can find all of our podcasts on the website or by searching Cersei wherever you get podcasts. Uh, With that, uh, thanks so much to Heidi and Sarah Jane. For Heidi, for Sarah Jane, and for little Elizabeth, I'm David Curran. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, happy reading.